Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. This has his prayer, Daniel's prayer, which we'll be considering this morning, and then the vision of the 70 weeks that follows. So Daniel is going to pray here for the end of his people's captivity. Remember, they've been in exile in Babylon for many, many years. And we're going to get to hear Daniel pray. So back in chapter 6, remember, he was thrown into the lion's den because he was a man of prayer, praying three times a day with his windows open, regardless of the king's decree that no one could ask any god or any man for any request unless they asked the king first. Daniel continued with his daily devotion to God and prayed, but we didn't really get to hear Daniel pray. This is our opportunity, and what a prayer it is. This prayer occasioned the revelation of the 70 weeks of of Daniel. You're wondering, you may be hearing us for the first time. What do you mean, 70 weeks? We're going to see. The 70 weeks of Daniel is a very unique prophecy because it's a time prophecy. It was a revelation to Israel when they could expect the appearance of the Messiah. So that's the nature of the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's very important. It's very complex. There's many different opinions about the starting date of the 70 weeks and all of that. We'll come to that, God willing, in the coming weeks. So let me read verses 1 to 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as to this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you, 
To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all, his, all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It's an amazing prayer, and there's no way that I can look at every single thing that he says here, but yet there are some things I want to highlight. So let's think our way through it. First of all, there's an introduction. Clearly, it's an introduction, verses 1 to 3. We find the time in which he made this prayer, the occasion of it, and his preparation for prayer. So let's look at those points. So it occurred in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Now, this is not the first time we come across Darius. We met Darius at the end of chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6. So when the Medes and the Persians took over the kingdom of Babylon under Cyrus the Great, Darius was appointed to rule over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, as it is said here in this verse. And it is repeated back in the 
end of the fifth chapter. So he is a median, he's a, a ruler from the Medes that was given the rule over the Chaldeans, as it says here. You know, I want to address just for a moment a, a problem historically with the text, which is really not a problem. There's a solution to it, but I want to tell you what it is. He is said here to be the son of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the king who is in power in the book of Esther. And that is really Xerxes, a Persian king. Darius is not Persian. He's a Median king. He's from the Medes. The problem is saying that he's the son of Ahasuerus. In reality, Xerxes or Ahasuerus came later after Darius. So this is the problem is it looks like Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about. Daniel's got his, his kings mixed up here as to who ruled when. So the solution is, and I discovered this in my study, before the Medes became part of the Medo-Persian Empire, they had their own kingdom and their own kings. The third king of the Median Empire was a man by the name of Syaxeres. You can look him up. It tells all about him. Syaxeres. He was the third king of of the Medes. Well, in, a, in literature outside of the Bible, he is referred to as Asuerus. So Ahasuerus, or Asuerus, it appears to be a title, not the personal name. So this is why Xerxes is wearing this title in the book of Esther. It means hero among rulers or hero among kings. That's the name, that's the meaning of Ahasuerus or Asuerus. So Syaxeres was also called this name, a little different spelling, but close enough to say this is really the same word, the same title. So when it says a son of, in the ancient world, that doesn't mean a father and son relationship, necessarily. It has many possibilities. Your grandfather could be said to be the father of a son. Or some ancestor way back, and you would still be called the son of. Or here's the other one, a previous ruler. So in the line of the Median kings, Syaxeres ruled, I didn't figure it out exactly, but maybe uh, 50 years before or so, before this ruler was appointed, the ruler over the Chaldeans. So technically, it could be said that he was the son of Asuerus or Syaxeres, the, Persi- the, the king of the Medes. The third, he's known as the third king of the Medes. There was one king after him. I can't pronounce his name. That was the king that was in charge when 
Cyrus the Great conquered the Medes, and the Medes became part of the empire of the Persians. So we have the Medo-Persian Empire was joined together, the two. So I thought that was worth pointing out, that there's not an error on Daniel's part. He's absolutely correct to say that he was the son of Azuerus, but not Xerxes, the Persian king, but Cyaxeres, the king of the Medes. Now he says, I perceive Daniel in the book. So he's studying the Bible, (laughs) namely the books of Jeremiah. And he learned from the prophet Jeremiah, who's a contemporary, that the time is nearing when Israel's captivity should come to an end, that they've been in Babylon for almost 70 years, according to Jeremiah's prophecy. What prophecy is he referring to? Well, it's found in a couple of places, but I'll just quote one. Jeremiah 25, 11. The land shall become a ruin and a waste, and shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah is very specific in warning the people. This is before Nebuchadnezzar took it over and desolated Jerusalem and the temple. Jeremiah is saying, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. And his prophecy came to pass. They did go into captivity on three. There were several deportations from 605 B.C. through 586, when actually the temple was destroyed. So that was the worst year, was 586. That's when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he he demolished Jerusalem and the temple, 586 B.C. But they began to go into captivity. Daniel was of the first youth that were deported back in 605. So from 605 to where Daniel presently is, is almost 70 years, 67 or 68 years. So they're coming near the time when they, need, when they can return to the land. So that's what this is all about. However, I want to add something to it. Why 70 years? How did God, was that just an arbitrary number? You're going to go into captivity for 70 years. That's, that's the lifetime of one person. Where did that 70 years come from? Let me give you a suggestion from the scripture why it may have been 70 years. I want to read 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. He took them into exile in Babylon. They became his servants until the establishment of of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy and until the land, now listen to this, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. Now to understand what that means, we need to go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25 and 26 where we're told that God gave Israel the command that they are to observe a Sabbath every seven years for the land, giving the land that they lived in rest. They weren't to plant anything. They weren't to 
they were to let the land just lay uncultivated for a whole year. That was called the land rest. Every seven years they were to do that. And God says, if you don't do that, I will bring judgment on you. With that in the background, and what it says in Second Chronicles, it, it's, it lends itself to the idea that Israel did not observe that command for a very long time. And so every seven years that they did not observe the rest of the land, the land Sabbath, that added to this punishment one year that eventually came. Notice how long that went for. What are we looking at? 490 years in order to have a 70-year captivity? Because this is what he says. To fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy, and until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. So that makes me think that it's 70 years of neglecting the Sabbath of the land. Or... Got to arrive at the the correct number here. Multiply 70 times 7, and that's 490 years. So it would be 70 years of land Sabbaths that they neglected over a long period of time, obviously, almost five centuries. And so I'm of the opinion that that's where this comes from. This is this, 70 years was not an arbitrary number. There was a reason why God said their captivity was to last 70 years. So they're taken out of the land, and the land is left desolate for 70 years to make up for all those neglected Sabbaths of the land. That makes sense how I said that? I feel like I bumbled that. Okay, so this is... And this is important to the 70 weeks because you're going to see there's a connection between 70 land Sabbaths and the 70 weeks of Daniel, which really translates into 70 sevens. And they're believed to be years, 490 years. So this is, there's a connection here between the punishment of Israel and the prophecy of 70 weeks. Notice how Daniel prepared himself for prayer. He was seeking God by prayer and pleas for mercy. Those are not the same, prayer and pleas. Prayer is intercession. Pleas is you're making arguments. You're making an appeal with an argument. So this is, and we're going to see what, how Daniel argues his case at the end. It's very powerful how he argues before God, why God should bring his people out of captivity and send them back to their land. It's an important thing when we pray that we argue our case before God. This is a biblical way of praying. There's prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Well, that's a common thing that we see in the Bible when people are humbling themselves before God and there's repentance, there's mourning, there's sorrow. What do they do? They put on sackcloth. That's this very coarsely woven fabric that's made from goat's hair. Something you wouldn't really want to wear every day. 
And then they dust themselves with ashes, and this was an outward sign that they're mourning for sin, they're repenting before God, they're humbling themselves. So Daniel's doing it like this before he begins to pray, along with fasting. So he puts it, he puts it all together. It's everything he can do, humanly speaking, to put himself in a place of prayer before God. So that's the introduction to his prayer. Now let's look. And the prayer breaks down very nicely into two sections. So this is how we can think through it. Verses 4 to 14 has to do with confessing sin. And then 15 to the end has to do with his plea for mercy and how he argues that. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So here it begins. Now, we know what confession is, don't we? The Bible says in the New Testament that if we, con- if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. In the New Testament, the word for con- confess means to say the same thing about, the meaning of the, the word in the original. To say the same thing about. That's to confess. In other words, if God says this is a sin, that we don't try to excuse it. We don't try to uh, use a, another word to tone it down a little bit so it doesn't sound so bad. A euphemism for sin. No, call it what it is. Call, call sin what God calls it. Acknowledge it to be that way. And that's exactly what David do, uh, uh, Daniel does here. He doesn't uh, try to change it up at all and make it sound more pretty. He's making a confession before God. I made confession and saying, I, I love how it begins, O oh Lord, well, first of all, I pray to the Lord, my God. Don't miss that. The personal pronoun, my God. Because for, for us to have access to God and to be answered We really need to be in that place where God is our God. That we belong to him and he belongs to us. That we're in that special relationship with him. Not everybody can pray, my God. For some, it's just very generic, oh God, help me. Sometimes the Lord hears a prayer like that. Oftentimes, he has saved people who have no knowledge of him. They can't claim that he's their God. They just call out to him, and God is merciful, and he hears, and he answers a prayer like that. But for his people, we need to be in the place of declaring, my God. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? In the darkest hour of his suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still, there's an expression of faith in that, that he called Yahweh his God. So that's an important thing here. Daniel is praying to his God. And then notice Daniel's very elevated view of the God of the Bible. Oh Lord, the great and awesome God. Awesome in the Hebrew means terrifying, to be feared, dreadful. He's got a correct concept of Yahweh. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Daniel 
This is a, an ascription of praise by declaring that about him. And then he adds, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now that's referring to the fact that the God of the Bible is a covenantal God. He's a God who has, inter- he has chosen to enter into covenants with his people. That is, to make agreements with them. And in the case of the covenant with Abraham, it's all about what God is going to do for Abraham and his descendants. To be their God and they will be his people. They're all promises. They do not depend on man's faithfulness whatsoever. It's, it's one way. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So Daniel is reminding God of the fact that he has entered into a covenant with his people. He has made promises to them. And so he's, he's, God loves to be reminded of these things by his people. God doesn't forget that he's a covenant God. He's a God who keeps covenant. But he loves for his people to say it to him, to bring it out in prayer. He's a God who makes promises. In other words, he's loyal, he's, he's reliable, he can be trusted, he is constant. He's not a flaky deity. He's not a God like Allah, who's whimsical and unpredictable, the God of Islam. Yahweh is altogether different in his character. He's a covenant-keeping God. So Daniel brings all of this up, I believe, because this is an expression of Daniel's confidence in God that is based on God's character and his covenant with his people. So he's laying a foundation here for going before God with confidence, bringing this prayer before him. Now, verse 5, he begins really now here with this confession. In my Bible, I circled the very first word, and I went through the entire prayer and circled every time he said we. This is is a we prayer. Not me, not I. I. Daniel is in this with his people. Now, remember who Daniel is. I mean, there's nothing recorded in the Bible of a negative nature when it comes to Daniel the prophet. He is held in the highest esteem in the Bible. Every other person in the Bible, there's some flaw in their character and it brings it out in Scripture. But there's never anything negative about Daniel. It's all positive. So this is a very pious and holy man of God. And yet he says, we have sinned. And in verse 5, he uses five different words in the original to describe sin. Five different ones. Because sin is multifaceted. There's many aspects to what sin is as God sees it. Failure, departing from the right way, crossing the line, and so on. Five different words in Hebrew. 
We have sinned. We've, and notice the English tries to bring it out. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled and so on. We turned aside five different terms. So he's calling sin what it is before God. Now, verse 6, he adds to that, and this is a terrible thing. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Boy, this is man's basic, one of his basic problems. Being a sinner, being fallen, gives him a desire not to listen to what God says. This is why fallen man, he doesn't want to go to church. He doesn't want to read the Bible. He doesn't want to talk about religion. He's not interested in hearing anything where God might speak to him. He has no inclination. He resists it. So it's very positive when you see somebody who shows an interest. Oh, hey, I think I want to hear more about this. Tell me more. When can I go to church with you? Somebody like that, you know the Lord is working in their life in a wonderful way, drawing them to himself. Because man, ordinarily, and is left to himself, he does not want to listen to God. And yet, listening is a very important thing, because listening to the Word of God is how we come to faith. This is how you become a believer, according to Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. This is how... Faith is born in the heart of a man or a woman. This is why it's important for people to hear the word of God, to read the word of God. This will bring them to a place of believing and trusting in the Lord. We have not listened. They turn, willfully turn to deaf ear then to God's prophets, to God's message. Now, verse 7, notice what he says. To you belongs righteousness. Yeah, but to us belongs open shame. So Daniel mentions the righteousness of God four times in his prayer. Righteousness and the fact that God is righteous. This is God's nature. He does everything right. He demands righteousness from his people. Something that man does not have. Man does not have any righteousness. He's without it. He's bankrupt. He's a sinner. But to God belongs righteousness. This is one of the attributes or perfections of God's nature. But to us belongs open shame. Literally, shame of face is how the Hebrew reads. Shame of face. Because when a person is full of shame, it's reflected in the countenance. Very hard to uh, hide that when a person feels shame. We've all experienced shame or embarrassment. You know, your face turns red and you just feel like... But it's a problem today with the, the sin that is committed in our culture today that there's no shame. This is one of the things that's really remarkable. Somebody can commit the worst possible things, have their picture taken, have it appear in the news. Everybody sees what they've done. They just sit there and there seems to be no shame in their, in their face for what they did. No expression of remorse or shame. But 
Daniel says, to God belongs righteousness, to us belongs shame. Why? He goes on to explain. It's because they had committed treachery against the Lord. I like that language. That's exactly what man has done. He's committed treachery. It puts it sin in a very bad light. It's the worst possible thing is to be guilty of treachery against God. Verse 9. To us, he repeats it, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now, notice verse 9. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Now, in the original, those are both plural. To God belongs mercies and forgivenesses. Why the plural? Well, it intensifies it. Number one, when you find a plural in in Hebrew, it gives it an an intensive meaning, meaning, but in this case it would have to do with the fact that God is rich in mercy. He, he just doesn't have mercy. He has a lot of mercy. He has abundant mercy. And the same with his forgiveness. How many times does he forgive? Well, Jesus said of his disciples, they're to forgive 70 times 7. Who, who's the example for the Christian's forgiveness? Well, God himself. He's the one who multiplies forgiveness. He multiplies pardon. As it says in Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. He'll have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That means he multiplies pardon is how it reads. He multiplies pardon. You and I need forgiveness more than one time. But there's a, an idea today that's current in vogue in the church that the hyper-grace people say, oh, hey, you, you, once you're saved, you don't need to ask for forgiveness anymore. You don't have to keep confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. Well, that's a falsehood. That's not true. John tells us that if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us. That's an ongoing thing in the life of the Christian because every day we have sins that we need to confess and bring before the Lord. In verses 11 to 14, basically, Daniel, again, he brings out the greatness of Israel's sin against God and also brings up God's justice. And the great calamity that comes as a consequence of their great sin. Notice verse 13. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So he's, he's brought out what it is said, what is said in the law, the law of Moses. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Now, catch this. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. 
Note that word yet. (laughs) They knew from the law what was happening to them and why. But Daniel says, yet that did not cause us to seek to make amends with God. We didn't seek Him. We didn't try to make it right with Him. And you know, this is really the story of the Bible. This is what the Bible shows over and over about man and about the human race. That after the fall, man does not seek after God. He doesn't try to be reconciled to God. He doesn't try to make up for what he's done and make things right. The initiative comes from God's side. He's the one that takes the initiative to restore the broken relationship with us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Man acts as though maybe God is at fault in some way. Like God did something wrong. This is a a terrible thing that is said about human nature. So we're not finding fault that only belonged to Israel. This is true of all of us. Unless God took the initiative to come down from heaven, become a man like us, and go to the cross and lay his life down, there would be no relationship with God. We would not have any relationship with him because we would never go out of our way to try to make it right with him. He had to do it all, and he did. He did it all. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God... Excuse me, verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For what reason? For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. I want you to note that the reason why the calamity came upon Israel had to do with the fact that God is righteous. He's just. This is why sin has to be punished, because God is righteous. If you want a good cross-reference to that, Psalm 11, verses 6 and 7 tells us the same thing. Upon the wicked, God will rain fire and brimstone. Upon the wicked, God will rain fire and brimstone. And the next verse tells the reason. For the Lord is righteous. That's why. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. But then the psalmist concludes, but the upright will behold his face. So this is why sin is punished. It's because God is righteous. Now, in the last section, verses 15 and 19, we have Daniel's plea. Remember what a plea is? It's God is making, Daniel's going to make an appeal to God with arguments. And there really is one underlying argument in this section. And I want to tell you what it is. Because if you know it from the beginning and you read through it, you'll see it. it. It jumps out at you. He argues on the basis of God's reputation, how he is looked upon by the other nations that surrounded his people, Israel. God is concerned about his reputation. So let's look at this. Verse 15. Notice how verse 15 
begins because it clearly indicates a transition in the prayer from confession now to making his argument. And now, O Lord, our God, so now he's, he's bringing his prayer to a head, really what, after making this wonderful confession of their sin, not simply saying, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, and then move on to the next thing. He went into some detail, didn't he, about confession. Something that's lacking today. Oh, Lord, our God. Now look at what he draws upon, because this, is the, this gives us like the underlying story or basis for why God's reputation is so important. Notice what he appeals to. O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. There it is. As it is this day... We have sinned and we have done wickedly. Now, what happened in Egypt? Now, you're all familiar with what happened with the book of Exodus. Israel was delivered out of Egypt after being there for four centuries. They had multiplied into a great nation from a family of 70. They became a million, anywhere from a million to two million, they estimate. The number, the number of men was 600,000 apart from the women and children. So this was a great multitude that came out of Egypt. And God sent his servant Moses to go in, perform all the, the, the miracles of, that became the ten plagues. God did that because he was judging. Those, those plagues were not just ideas that God, well, I think I'll send flies, I think I'll darken the moon or the sun. All of those plagues had to do with an Egyptian deity. Those were Egyptian gods that were being mocked. The frogs and all of that. They were being mocked by the plagues that God sent. So Yahweh was showing, because his people got lost in the Egyptian culture, they forgot how great Yahweh was. So God had to show himself that he was the Lord. And and remember Pharaoh's first response when Moses went to him and he said, the Lord says, let my people, who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's what Pharaoh said. Well, he's about to find out who the Lord is with the plagues. So God was distinguishing himself from the idols of Egypt. He was making a name for himself among the Egyptians and among his own people, and that reputation went beyond them. Remember when they were, came through the wilderness and they were approaching Jericho, which was now in the land of Canaan? The people of Jericho were frightened by the prospect of the Israelites coming. Why? Because they had heard what happened in Egypt and knew the greatness of their God. So God's reputation was at stake here. He made a name for himself. So this is a very important argument that Daniel is making because this is the basis for now, and I want you to note 
all the places where he says, your people, your sanctuary, your land, your holy hill, and so on, in this section. So now, verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath be turned away. Now, you know, once God's wrath is stirred up, it's not easily placated. God just, you know, sometimes he has relinquished his wrath when he was going to bring judgment. But he did it because there was a change in the people. There was repentance. So he, he, he didn't follow through on his threat. I'm thinking of Nineveh when he sent Jonah there. He was going to destroy that city. But they repented at the preaching of Jonah And God changed his mind, and his wrath was calmed down, as it were. But usually that wrath has to be spent. There's going to be an object of that wrath when his wrath is provoked. In this case, Israel became the brunt of it for their sin. It was more than just neglecting their land Sabbaths for all that time. They were involved in idolatry, false religion, and so on. They were warned about it. So Daniel is making an appeal that God would turn from his wrath. Now, you can make that appeal on the basis of the fact, well, we have spent 70 years in captivity. Your, your judgment has been spent. We, are, we have fulfilled the punishment that Jeremiah announced. But that's really not his argument. Daniel's argument is, notice, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, notice this, have become a byword among all the peoples. You know what a byword is? That means that they became the object of mockery and were a reproach. In other words, they were treated with contempt by the surrounding nations. And that reflected back on Yahweh's reputation. This was his holy hill. That's referring to Zion where the temple was, the holy hill. Jerusalem is on a mountain anyway. But the temple mount is even higher, Mount Zion. Your city, your holy hill, your people have become a byword. An object of mockery and scorn and reproach. And they were, they were treated with contempt. This, this reflected back on God himself. Certainly God didn't want his people to go on being the object of contempt and dishonor. But I think Daniel's real argument is that this was to dishonor Yahweh's city and his people. And so it was a dishonoring of himself. And God is jealous about his reputation. Now, verse 17, now therefore, 
O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord. See, it comes out again. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. What's your sanctuary? The temple where God was worshipped. Which laid in ruins, by the way. Which is desolate. That's what he means. The temple had been destroyed. But make your face to shine. So when a person has a bright, shining face, you know, a happy countenance and all that kind of reflects uh, favor, happiness. This is this idea comes out of the Numbers chapter six. Remember the prayer of the high priest: "The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you." That's that's the idea. That's the that's the blessing. To have God's face shining on us, this is what we want. I want to have God's face shining on me. That's only possible if I'm in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm a believer in Christ and I'm resting in his finished work on the cross for my salvation, then God sees me with favor and he accepts me. Same with you. If you're outside of Christ, you haven't yet come to faith in Christ, you don't, you don't have his face shining on you yet. But that can change. That can change. But Daniel is asking for God's face to shine. Rather than being wrathful and having a frown on his face. Now, Lord, look upon your people and your sanctuary with a shining face. It's a... Most important thing any one of us could want in this life is to have God looking upon us with favor and acceptance. Nothing more important than that. Verse 18. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Again, it's all about God's reputation. That this is his city, it reflects on him what has happened. For we do not present our plea before you because of our righteousness. I love that. When you think of who Daniel is, like I mentioned a moment ago, what a, what a wonderful servant of God he was. How he remained faithful all those years while he was in a very toxic culture of Babylon. When he could have messed up many times and gone south in his behavior. He remained steady, faithful to God all that time, yet that's not the basis for his plea. He doesn't plea before God on the basis of his righteous life. But rather, he says, your mercy. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. And this is every man and woman's hope. Our only hope and refuge, really, is the mercy of the Lord. When Jesus told that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, how they went into the temple to to pray, the Pharisee, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and says, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess and blah, blah. He 
brings before God all the good things that he does. He was pleading his righteousness, the Pharisee. But Jesus, in great contrast, he says, but the tax collector, he came in, he started to beat on his chest. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a good prayer. You don't have to pray a very long prayer to be saved. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You don't have to say, Jesus, come into my heart. You don't have to say, I believe you rose from the dead. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that man went down to his house justified. He was declared righteous by God that moment. In other words, it was all, he was made right with God on the spot with that prayer. The mercy of God is to be a man's plea. After David sinned, committed adultery and murder, and then was silent for one year, he would not admit his sin for one year against God. What a lapse in the life of David. I'm glad it's in the Bible because that has happened to God's people. Similar things doesn't mean the person is unsaved or lost because they lapse into sin. Because you see the heart of David in Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance. And you know how the psalm begins? Have mercy upon me, O God. According unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David goes to God with the same plea, God's mercy. According to your abundant mercies, blot out my sin. This is the argument. Finally, verse 19. Boy, I just hear... And I tried to read it with a little bit of a crescendo here because I think it got, Daniel was getting more intense that his prayer really reaches a climax in verse 19, the conclusion. Oh Lord, hear, forgive, pay attention, act, delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. See? So throughout the plea, it's all about God's reputation doing this because it's his people and so on. The great conclusion, it's a mighty prayer. Now, just a couple of things. I want you to note, Daniel was moved to prayer by reading the scripture. That's an, that is an important principle. He was moved to prayer by reading scripture. So when you find your heart in a place where you're not so inclined to pray, you don't feel like there's any substance there, like, what do I say? I don't really feel motivated. Reading the Word of God will nourish your prayer life. It'll stir you up to pray. It will give you content to pray. Because you know how we know that? It's been estimated that 85% of this prayer that we just went through was taken from language out of the Old Testament, especially the book of Deuteronomy. Daniel was so acquainted with Scripture that he incorporated it into his prayer. It became his prayer language, the Bible. 
So this is how the Word of God can help us in prayer. And then another thing I want to note is the, the spirit in which Daniel prays, the whole tone of his prayer, it really reveals a man who is very close to God, a man who walks with God, a man who lives in the presence of God like every day and every moment. This is important to our prayer life, that we be thinking of the Lord all day long. Paul says to pray without ceasing. He doesn't mean to be constantly praying, but it's the idea of be always in a place where you pray and you're talking to the Lord all day long. Lord this, Lord that. Oh, Lord, help me with this. Lord, bless my food. I mean, just all day long. We're living life in his presence. You know how different that is from people that are not saved? They're not thinking about God whatsoever. They don't think about him. What makes a difference? The work of the Holy Spirit. Why would you be thinking of the Lord all day long versus somebody who doesn't have any thoughts of God during the day? It's the work of the Spirit of God that puts us in a place where we're inclined to think those thoughts, pray those prayers, seek his face, and so on. And then finally... It was Daniel's prayer that facilitated the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah said, you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. But you know what is added to that? And again, this is found in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I've taken parts out of it and put it together. Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place, that is to the land of Israel. Listen, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will bring you back to the land from which you went into exile. That, don't miss that. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. In other words, it's going to be through prayer that the captivity is going to end and God is going to bring his people back to prayer. I have no doubt that Daniel read that. And that in part explains the incentive of why he prayed like this. He knew that God was going to answer a prayer that was going to be in behalf of his people returning to the land. He promised it. You know, God works through means. Now, God, of course, had it all planned how long, when they were going to go into captivity, how long they were going to be in captivity, when they were going to go home, who was going to send them back to the land. That happened to be Cyrus, by the way. Cyrus the Great. He's the one who decreed to go back to Ezra, to go back and build the temple. I think it was Cyrus. I think it was Cyrus. We'll have to go back and look at that. Prayer is one of the means that God uses to carry out his purposes. 
you've all heard that God has not only ordained the end, but he has ordained the means to the end. God has ordained that when you plant a seed, that it should turn into a plant that you can harvest food from. He has ordained that. That's the way his creation works. But he's also ordained that man cultivate the field, that man sow the seed and water it. Those are the means. So there's means that are necessary in order to obtain the end result. And that's what we mean by that. In theology, we say that the means are appointed or ordained by God the same as the end result. And so prayer fits into that category. It's the means of bringing about God's purpose. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.